Welcome. <clears throat> if you have your Bibles, open them up to Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Matthew 5, 17. Our series is This is Jesus. And we want to really learn about the life of Jesus, the way he lived, the things that he did, and also the things that he taught. And uh, I am just so, I love the book of Matthew, and I love learning what Jesus says. Now, how many of you have ever heard of uh, Joni Erickson Tata? Okay, so, I, well, if you didn't raise your hand, I'm not insulting you. Everybody's heard of Joni Erickson Tata. Um, I remember going through a stage of life when I was young, and I used to think about all kinds of things that would just be disastrous in my life. And I just thought, how could I function? And one of those things is that my dad was bald. And <laughs> I used to just think, how does he go outside? I'd be so embarrassed if I was bald. And I thought, thank goodness I have hair. Little did I know what the Lord had in store for me. Um, by the way, I'm not still embarrassed to go outside. You can, you, you know, we want, want to put you at ease at that. Another, another thing that I thought about was if some great tragedy happened to me and there, there was a, there was a, um, our pastor's daughter ended up getting paralyzed in a car accident. And I remember looking her, at her and just thinking, if that happened to me, how would I function? Like, I just felt like I wouldn't want to live. That would be the greatest possible disaster. And I remember as a kid growing up and hearing the story of Joni Erickson Tata, and it just was amazing to me. I didn't understand it. I couldn't picture it. But she is such an amazing lady. She was very athletic in her teen years, did a lot of things. And in 1967, she was 16 years old. And she, she dove down into a pool of water, didn't realize it wasn't a swimming pool, it was a lake. But she didn't realize that it was shallow. And when she dove down into it, she broke her neck and became a paraplegic. And this is a picture of Joni. Now, one of the amazing things is that God took that incredible tragedy and did such amazing things with her. Um, she started a ministry ministering to people and families who... Uh, were associated with uh, who had disabilities, families that had disabilities. Um, she's been involved in legislation. Uh, the way that God worked in her life was so powerful that it's just been just such an amazing message. And, and she actually says this. I wanted to throw just a, a few quotes up there. And she says here, um, this paralysis is my greatest mercy. How could anybody look at a tragedy, look at a difficulty like that, and say, this is my greatest mercy? Her, her life was transformed. God did amazing things through this tragedy. Um, her heart, one of the things that she says, a couple other quotes I'll read, heartache forces us to embrace God out of desperation and urgent need. God is never closer than when your heart is aching. He has chosen not to heal me, but to hold me. And the more intense the pain, the closer his embrace. It's amazing how God used her tragedy to get a hold of her heart and to touch many other people through her. And I just want you to know that, that the church is full of people like Joni. 
The church is full of people who have been hurt in, in physical ways, sometimes suffering in that way. But I would say even beyond that, the church is full of people whose lives have been devastated by the, the pain and the destruction of sin. Living a life apart from God, doing all the things that God says not to do, and the pain and the sorrow and the difficulty and, and the damage to a person's soul that comes from living a sinful life. Prisons are full of people who have disregarded things that God said and they've had disaster in their life. And yet God does amazing and beautiful things through people who have problems. Uh, one, of, one, of my, one of the passages that I really love is a passage in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. And it says this, it, it's a message about people who don't inherit God's kingdom, which basically is describing the world and where it starts. And this is what it says. It says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived, neither sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, those who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now here's the hard thing. Doesn't that actually describe every single person in this room? I mean, it does, right? We have those things have touched every one of us. And yet people whose lives are made up of those things will never inherit the kingdom of God. But these next wor words are so powerful. Verse 11, and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. God comes into our life. He forgives us. He transforms us. He gives us a new life. And that's what Jesus is preaching about in the Sermon on the Mount. He's saying, you were sinners. You were separated from God. But now that through me, you've come to know Christ, your life is transformed. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, in Christ you are a new creature Old things have passed away, new things have come. And the first 16 verses of Matthew chapter 5 is Jesus just saying, this is what your life is like now. These are the things that are going to flow out of your heart. And one of the things we know is that living right, thinking right, doesn't just automatically come out of our life. We do have a transformed heart. We do want to do those things. But we live that way because we read what Jesus says and we discipline ourselves and we encourage one another and we work hard to be the people that God is making us to be. Now, I have a question for you. As we think about Joni, um, do you think that Joni would ever say to her kids, Lord, I think she'd ever say to her kids, the Lord has done amazing things in my life through my being paralyzed through this tragedy in my life. He's just, um, he's just done an, inc an incredible thing in my life. So kids, come with me. I want to take you up to that, um, that cliff that I jumped off of, and I want you all to jump in to this, this lake just like I did so you can be a paraplegic and have all the blessings that God has blessed me with. Uh, how many of you think she ever had that conversation with her kids? Um, do you think that instead she would say to her kids and she'd say to anybody else, 
Hey, God does amazing things. He takes broken people. He puts them back together. There's no tragedy you could face that God can't forgive and restore. There's no sin you can commit that Jesus can't reconcile for you, that he can't bring you back to God. And it's like we would understand that, but we would never say to anybody, God's done amazing things in my life. I was a sinner. I made all these choices and God transformed me. Kids, go do all these things that I did. Like nobody would do that. And so the church, the church is, we're, we're going to be looking at uh, four things this morning. One, we're going to be looking at the fact that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament law. We need to think correctly about that. And then we're going to look at three things, three examples that Jesus gives to the people he's speaking to, where he contrasts the way that the Pharisees taught the Old Testament, which missed the whole point of the Old Testament. And Jesus is going to say, this is what they said, but I'm the great teacher. Let me tell you what you should really think about these things. And what Jesus says is God doesn't care about the externals only. He cares ultimately about your heart. And your heart will be reflected in externals. But the Pharisees were trying really hard to work on what was outside. And they were ignoring the things that were in their heart. And Jesus says, no, you need to think about your heart. And so as we talk about these things, Jesus lays out a very high standard for how we should behave and how we should think. And one of the things that you all need to know, it is completely different from the culture of the Pharisees. It is completely different from the things that the Pharisees taught. And you want to know something else? It's completely different from anything you will learn in anywhere in our culture other than in a church or with a group of people who open up God's word and who read it for what it is. And so as we touch these things, as we go through what God's standards are, for many of you, you're going to go, oh, yeah, that's talking about me. Yeah, I blew it there. Yeah, I did that wrong. Yeah, I did that wrong too. Yes, as terrible as that is, I did that. And you want to know something? Man, that's a story of every person before they come to know Christ. That's not something to be afraid of. It's, it, we do, in a sense, we say, God, I wish I wouldn't have lived a rebellious life against you, but I'm so thankful for your grace, for your kindness, for your forgiveness, the transformation. Remember, one of the, thing, one of the Beatitudes was, Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. And we have received God's mercy, so we're merciful to others. So as we go through this, I just want to say, none of you should, nobody should feel beat up. If you are described this morning, well, if you're a believer, such were some of you. That's why Jesus died. One of the things that is a real struggle in the church, though, and one of the things that is a real difficulty in families, is you can't believe how many people have lived a sinful life. And because they don't want to look back at that and say, yeah, that was wrong, it makes me feel bad to really own up to what that was, and because of that, they actually justify it in their own mind. Instead of teaching their kids, don't make the same mistakes I made, they say, hey, I did it, it's okay if you do it. Or people might think, since I live that way, I can't say it's wrong. I can't really do that because of the struggles I've had. That's not how we are in the Christian church. 
we make mistakes, we sin, we blow it, we're hurt, and then we spend the rest of our life being thankful for God's grace and mercy and working hard to help other people not make the same mistakes that we made. By the way, that's why I went into youth ministry. It's actually why I'm in ministry, is I made so many bad choices in my life growing up that were so painful, and I finally came to Christ and realized the destructive things that I had done to myself, and I thought, okay, I want to spend the rest of my life helping other people not do these things. Okay, how's that for an introduction? (laughs) Now, nobody's going to be hurt and devastated based on what Jesus has to say. All right, let's look at this. If you have your Bibles, let's start in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. This is what Jesus says about the Old Testament law. And we need to be people that understand that Jesus came to fulfill the Old Testament. He came to fulfill the Old Testament. Look at what he says here in verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. What Jesus is saying is he did not come to abolish the law. There are many people who think, oh man, in the Old Testament, God was so harsh, he was so mean, he wiped out entire cities, he flooded the world and drowned everybody because they were sinful and violent, and he sent Noah to preach for 120 years, and when people didn't listen, they were destroyed. And they feel like, oh man, that's a really harsh God, that's a, I, that scares me when I think about that. I want, I want the New Testament God, the God of love. And one of the things that everybody needs to know is that there's no difference between the God in the Old Testament and the God in the New Testament. The God in the Old Testament loved people and punished sin. The God in the New Testament loves people and punishes sin. There is no difference. And I think sometimes when we approach the Old Testament, we can struggle with it because we don't read it in its context. We don't realize who it was written to, why it was written, and what the lesson there is for us. When you read the Old Testament and you read about sins, you're supposed to take an animal and kill it and sacrifice it, and and you're supposed to do those things. We don't do that, but we still learn from it. It's still important for us to know it, but we understand the Old Testament in its context. It would be ridiculous for a person to sacrifice an animal today, and here's the reason why. Old Testament sacrifices pointed to Jesus who would come. And there are many things in the Old Testament that are in that way. But now that Jesus has come, now that he has been the ultimate sacrifice, now we look back and we say, okay, these are all the things in the Old Testament that God was teaching us about Jesus and who he would be and what he's done for us. And so there are many things like that in the Old Testament, but one of the things that it's important for us to know, by the way, the law and the prophets, that is a description of the entire Old Testament. And Jesus says, not a jot or a dot, not not an iota or a dot is going to pass away from the law until all is accomplished. That is saying that every single letter and every stroke of a letter, that would be like saying the difference between R and P. You know, there's like a little stroke and it changes the letter and it changes the meaning. What Jesus is saying is that the Old Testament and all of Scripture 
is exact. God wrote exactly what he wanted and not a single letter, no meaning, no, nothing will be changed until all is accomplished. And so God is going to do his word. He's going to complete his word. And when Jesus says, don't think I came to abolish it, that's, that's saying don't even consider that as an option. Here's why Jesus says that. The Pharisees were the teachers of the day, and they taught all kinds of things, and Jesus was about to say, everything that they're telling you is wrong. And he didn't want people to be confused and to think he was saying the Old Testament is wrong. He's being very clear, God, the Old Testament, that is not wrong. What these people are saying about the Old Testament is wrong. So he makes a clear distinction between bad teaching and the Old Testament itself. And so he's going to fulfill this law. The Old Testament was written about Jesus. In fact, this is one of the things that Jesus said to the Pharisees. He said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Anybody who studies any part of the Bible and doesn't come to Jesus has missed the whole point. Because the whole Bible is about Jesus. So what's the application from that perspective? Well, we need to read it carefully and we need to trust it. We need to read it and trust it. Look at verse 19. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, the law needs to be used correctly and properly. We need to interpret it correctly. So in the Old Testament, a person could not wear a shirt that was both cotton and polyester. They didn't have polyester there then. But you weren't allowed to mix things. Well, God had a reason for that. It was to make Israel distinct, to help them understand purity. That principle has not changed. In the Old Testament, you could only marry another Jew. And many people have misinterpreted that as you can only marry within your race. When the reality is that never had anything to do with race. It had to do with a relationship with God. And that's been repeated in the New Testament. As a believer, you commit yourself to and you marry other believers. And so we read the Old Testament. We understand the point of it. We look to the New Testament and we, we understand how to live life. And so there are those things that we need to be very careful that we're not relaxing and that we're not changing what God said in the Old Testament, but that we are applying it properly and correctly. And by the way, if you read the book of Acts... The whole New Testament, especially the book of Acts, is an explanation of how did the Old Testament change? What was it and what is it now? And so as we read the Bible, we understand that clearly. Look at verse 20. And now Jesus is going to talk about their teachers. And he says, For I tell you that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, there's a lot of people that think that good people go to heaven. And in one sense, I could say, good people go to heaven. Do you know how many good people there are? There was one, and that's Jesus. There are no good people. Because God's standard for good is perfection. 
And the Pharisees, they worked so hard. They were so disciplined. They tried to obey all the laws. And Jesus looks at the Pharisees and says, unless you're better than them, you will never go to heaven. And he communicated two things. Number one, works don't get you to heaven. And number two, these religious leaders don't know how to get to heaven. In Matthew chapter 23, Jesus says this. He's pronouncing woes on the Pharisees. And he says this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you travel across land and sea to make a single proselyte. That's a single follower. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourself. He said, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the people who have studied the Old Testament and rejected me are on their way to hell. And everybody who follows them is also going to hell. So he said, so when it comes to who you follow and who you pick as a teacher, it's important, right? We don't want to pick people who don't know Jesus and have them instruct us. He goes on, Matthew 23, 23, about relaxing the commandments of God. Look what he says here. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe the mint and the dill and the cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. He says, you're, you're tithing your herbs. Uh, another thing that Jesus said is you're straining out a gnat, but you're swallowing a camel. But if you'll notice what it says here at the end here, he says, you ought to have done, these you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Jesus doesn't say God doesn't care about the details of your life. He doesn't care if you're wholeheartedly obeying him, just do the big things and forget the little things. That's not what Jesus says. Jesus says, give God your whole heart. Follow him with everything. Be diligent in honoring and loving and obeying him. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll obey me. And that means everything, and we're going to learn, it means that we'll obey him from the heart. And so that's what Jesus is teaching, and he says you should have done these other details without neglecting the big things. Okay, let's look at what Jesus says about some of these things. We're going to look first at anger. We need to refuse to give anger a place in our heart. The Pharisees, as they taught, they were always looking for a way to disregard what God really meant. They would come up with rules of, hey, I can obey this. And in their obedience, they would actually disobey the point of everything. And Jesus just says, no, God wants your heart. And he's going to give three examples. He actually gives more than three, but we're going to look at three this morning. And the three examples he gives is anger. He's going to talk about anger. He's going to talk about lust. He's going to talk about divorce. Those are the three examples that we're going to look at this morning. And one of the things that we know here is that Jesus is talking about what is in our heart, but he's also going to challenge us and encourage us about how we should think about things, how we should approach things. God's laws are not just because he tells us to do them. They are for that reason, but they're also for our good. They are to bless us. So let's look at this first one, verse 21. You have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Now the Pharisees, one of the things that they would do here is they would say, I haven't killed anybody, but the attitude, the heart behind that, that God cared about, they disregarded. And Jesus is going to say, don't focus on the behavior, 
focus on your heart. When Jesus says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, he's not contradicting the Old Testament. He's telling them, you've been taught incorrectly. And then he repeats the sixth commandment, which is, you shall not murder. By the way, there was the death penalty for murder. If you killed somebody, you would be executed. And that's because people are made in God's image. And when you attack the image of God, when you attack a person made in God's image, you are attacking God. God takes that personally. And that's why God gives the death penalty for murder. He says, when you kill a person who's made in God's image, there is no just punishment on earth that is significant enough other than that you forfeit your life. So God gives the death penalty for murder. Now, that's not a political statement. This is a big issue, but in principle, one of the reasons that people oppose the death penalty is because they don't understand the significance of a person being made in God's image. There are other reasons people oppose the death penalty, like people that are convicted of murder, and then later they find out they didn't do it. So I'm not making a political statement here, but in principle, our culture misses the purpose of the death penalty. It's because people are made in God's image. But Jesus says this, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brothers will be liable to judgment. That's the same consequence. That if you are angry, Jesus equates that with the consequence of murder. And then he goes on and he says some things that had to just blow his audience away. And what he goes on to say here is if you're angry with your brother, you will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother, the NIV uses the word raka. We don't know what that is. I had a friend in college who used to run around telling everybody raka, you know, and nobody knew what that was. But that's to say you're empty headed. You don't know very much. And when you insult a person in that way and you just say you're good for nothing, Jesus says if you do that, you're guilty before the Supreme Court. So it's a step up. And then he goes on and he says, if you say you fool. Now, the Greek word for fool sounds like moron. If you call somebody a moron, that's to say you have no value. You're, you're just a stupid person. It's a more intense insult. He says, if you do that, then you will be liable to the fire of hell. Jesus is saying when you disregard people, when you speak against people, remember James chapter 3 says, with your tongue you bless God, and with it you curse men. These things ought not to be this way. Jesus says you're focusing on the acts of murder, but he's saying you need to focus on anger and the way that you speak to and the way that you speak about people made in his image. And then he goes on in verse 23, and he says, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar. Go, first be reconciled to your brother, and then offer your gift. One of the things that Jesus says here is he just says, your relationships with people impact your relationship with God. Some people say, I love God and I'm close to God, but I hate these eight people in my life. You remember 1 John, it says, if you don't love your brother who you have seen, you cannot love God whom you haven't seen. So take, back, take a step back and just think through for you, who are you mad at? 
Who are you angry toward? Who do you have hatred toward? And now you need to put that in the context of your relationship with God. And he says, before you give an offering, before you come to worship, go be reconciled with the people. Do you remember the Beatitudes? One of them was, blessed are the what? Peacemakers. And that's one of the things that God does when he saves us. We become peacemakers. We're, we're forgiving. We're gracious. We're kind because of what Jesus has done for us. And Jesus says that needs to show up in your attitudes toward people. It says this in Psalm 66, 18, If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. 1 Peter 3, 7 puts this in marriage. Now, here's an interesting thing. If you take all these things Jesus says, they impact marriage significantly. Everyone has application to marriage because marriage is about relationships. But here's one of the ways that this works out. 1 Peter 3, 7, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Um, you know anybody who's married and hates the person they're married to? I mean, marriage, you know, you, you've, I've told you this before, but you know the three rings of marriage. There's the engagement ring. There's the wedding ring. And can we all say together, what's the third one? The suffering. <laughs> That's right. Sometimes people suffer in marriage. Of course, not me. I've heard other people have suffered, but, you know, Michelle's perfect, so. We need to be people that are diligent to work these things out. And look at, uh, look at verse um, 25. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to guard that you be in prison. Truly I say to you that you will never get out until you have paid the last penalty. Jesus is talking here about anger. You know how anger uh, encourages people to do crazy things? Uh, I know people that are, that are in the midst of a divorce and they're having conflict and, and they do things that are so personally destructive. They sue each other. They write letters. And, and it's like, however much money they have, by the time they're done with their divorce, neither of them has any. The attorneys have it all. I remember one time I was talking to a person who was getting ready to head into divorce, um, not, by, not by their fault. Uh, the person that they were married to had been unfaithful and was leaving them. And uh, in their divorce, I just said, look, figure out what's fair. And then give, give your ex-husband way more than what's fair. And everybody's going to end up ahead. But instead, people are so angry. They do things that are destructive. You know, a lot of times people are angry um, because they've been hurt. I, I think that's one of the things that drives anger is the feeling of hurt when you feel like you've been wronged. But a lot of times we feel wronged by things that are actually our fault. Can you think of any biblical examples of that? Ever think about Cain and Abel? The very first murder happened because Cain was angry. And this is my encouragement for you. Jesus is talking about a believer's attitude toward anger, but you need to know that anger will destroy your life if you don't deal with it. Cain, in one moment, changed the course of his life. It says here in Genesis chapter 4, verse 6, this is God talking to Cain, and he says, The Lord says to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? Cain 
was angry because God didn't accept his offering, but he did accept his brothers. And so Cain is angry at God and he's angry at his brother. And it says here, if you do well, will not you be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Anger drives people to sinful behavior. If you don't deal with anger in your life, it will control you, it will destroy you, it will destroy your relationships. Anger is one of Satan's favorite tools in a person's life. Look at Ephesians 4.26. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Um, as you think through anger in your, your life, you need to be a person. We need to be people that overlook everything we can possibly overlook. But when there's something that happens that bothers you, don't let the sun go down on your anger. If it's eating you up, if it's, if it's bothering you, you need to go to people and you need to work it out. You need to have conversations. And sometimes that can be helpful and good. A lot of times in relationships and marriages and in friendships and even with kids and all kinds of things, there's these things that they just build up and we never talk about them and we just get more and more angry. And Jesus is telling us and God tells us, don't let that happen. Deal with the things that are a frustration to you. If you want to know what the reality is, if you rely on how other people respond for your anger to be put to the side, if you need other people to tell you they're sorry, if you need other people to do the right thing, um, you're going to be an angry person because other people don't always do the right thing. And that's where what Jesus says about we forgive because God forgave us. We are merciful because God's been merciful to us. And so anger is one of those things that you deal with with people, but you deal with in your own heart between you and the Lord using the things that God tells us to overcome those. And so this is significant. And the next thing that we're going to look at is this whole issue of lust. We're going to look at this issue of lust. We need to do anything possible to rid ourselves of lust. That is a huge struggle in our culture and our society. Matthew chapter 25, verse 27 says, You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Um, looking with lust is, is when we just allow um, sexual desire to run unrestrained. And when we look at people and we have sexual lustful desires and we entertain that in our heart, it's it's actually the sin of coveting. When you look at somebody or something that doesn't belong to you and you say, I want that. And so Jesus just says, don't just deal with adultery. You need to deal with it when you're thinking about it. You remember James, that pattern where he talks about um, temptation and sin and lust and how it conceives and it gives birth to sin. So the thought happens before the action. And if you don't deal with the thought, you'll be devastated in your actions. And so we need to fight the battle, not in our behavior, but in our thinking. So um, he goes on in verse 29 about this whole thing of sexual immorality and lust. And he basically says, it is better to be crippled than to be separated from God. Lust is so significant that he says, you're better off. Let me just read it. If your right eye causes you to sin, 
tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Now, there's been all kinds of debate about, is Jesus being speaking with hyperbole? Is it literal? Is this true? And what I would say to you is, it's literal, and you should not poke out your eye or cut off your hand. There's a story about one of the church fathers who, by the way, he's a very respected church father, but he was not a Christian. Uh, he wrote a lot of things, very respected, but he didn't believe in the virgin birth. So he wasn't actually a believer, but as he studied the Bible and as he was reading those things, he re read this passage and he really struggled with lustful thoughts. And so he used to roll around on these spikes all over his body, trying to, trying to just punish himself and get rid of these thoughts. And, and church history says that he eventually castrated himself to try to get rid of these lustful thoughts. And he just said, man, I need to do anything to deal with this. And after he had done all those things, he still struggled with lust and thought, okay, that was a bad idea. <laughs> if you could poke your eye out and not struggle with sin, and if you could cut off your hand and not struggle with sin, and that that would get you into heaven, I'd say by all means do it. But here's the deal. You can poke out your eyes and you can cut off your hands, and that doesn't solve your sin problem. So please don't leave here thinking that you should cut off your hand or poke out your eyes. But what this is saying is that there is no limit to what you should do to get rid of a lust problem. Let's just talk for a second about the internet. Um, what a challenging life we live. What a challenging culture we're in. I remember as a kid, even if I had no, if I had no filter in my own heart, no discipline, and I just wanted to do the wrong thing, when I was growing up, how would you do it? Where do you find that stuff? It wasn't in my house. You had to look for it. You had to do your best to go get it somewhere. Nowadays, Every single person wakes up every day and at the touch of their fingerprint, on their phone, on their computer, sexual immorality, the incitement of lust in a person's heart is there for anybody at any time. This is something that we need to take seriously. If you, that has so significantly harmed our culture. It has so significantly harmed people. It has so significantly harmed marriage. And yet that's just something that is rampant in our culture, and we need to take it seriously. There is no limit to what you should do. People are like, well, I need my phone. Get rid of your phone if you need to get rid of your phone. Um, in, in our house, we have Internet filters. Uh, we, we use this software so that when I go anywhere I go on the Internet, it emails Michelle. And anywhere my kids go on the Internet, it emails me, and it emails Michelle. And we do those things, and it's diligent, it's, it's difficult, it's challenging. Sometimes it's inconvenient. There have been times my kids have been trying to do homework, and they can't do their homework because the, their school page gets blocked uh, because the filter doesn't work right. And the way that that conversation has gone in my house is I've just said to them, um, if you fail your class, that's better than leaving our house, leaving my house, being an 18 or a 19-year-old that's addi addicted to internet pornography. So if you have to choose between the two, fail your class. If you can't figure out a way to filter it, get rid of your phone. This is such a significant issue, and in our culture we've become callous to it where we don't even think about it. Um, th this could deserve much more conversation. But one of the things that I, that I want to say about this is that 
Um, this is an issue that we need to take seriously. It's something we need to be talking about. If you're married, you should talk about these things. And, and I think that there are, it's never a wife's fault when a man's struggling with the internet. And I want to go beyond that and say, it's not the husband's fault when the wife's struggling with the internet. Um, the, there is a significant number of men who struggle and there is a significant number of women who struggle on the internet. That's not a gender issue. And, um, and we need to love each other and care about each other enough that we're not beating each, up, beating each other up over it, but that we can talk honestly and that we're dealing with it and that we're doing things to help each other. And sometimes what happens is when we blow it and when we're struggling with sin, we're so ashamed, we're so embarrassed, we can't talk to anybody and we don't get help. And the church needs to be a place that you can run and say, hey, I'm struggling with this and I need help, and that you won't be judged. And I would just say, it's hurtful when those things happen, but your marriage needs to be a place where you can say to each other, I love you and I'm struggling with sin and this is what's going on and will you help me? And where we love each other enough to get involved and help. And that's a very complex, very challenging thing that we should talk a lot more about. But these are things we need to take seriously. And I just want to say, if you're a parent, you need to make sure that your kids, when they're young, when they don't have the, the maturity or the spiritual desire to please the Lord in their life, that you are helping to build fences so that your kids don't become Christians one day when they're 18 and they have this massive addiction in their life that they got to spend the rest of their life trying to overcome. And I think as parents and as believers, sometimes we're so careless in that regard. But Jesus says, if your right eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. If your hand is causing you to stumble, cut it off. This is an issue that we need to take very seriously. And um, can you tell I'm passionate about that? Um, as a youth pastor and as a pastor over many, many years, this is an issue that I've been involved in people's lives, trying to encourage, trying to help, and just seeing the destruction and the difficulty. And by the way, it's not just people I know. These are issues I have to be diligent in in my own life. I have to say, what am I going to do to keep myself from falling into these areas. This is not something that pastors or elders or anybody is immune to. These are things that we all need to take seriously. Now we have a lot more to do in the passage that I was gonna cover this morning, but we're gonna get a bonus next week and we're gonna come back to the rest of this later. Um, here's one thing I wanna just throw out there to you. I wanna end with this. No matter how you've struggled, no matter what has gone on in your life, this is what I want to encourage you with. This is what Jesus says. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I love Psalm 32. This is what David says. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. And night and day your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the fever heat of summer. That's how a lot of people feel. People skip church because they're blowing it on the internet on Saturday night. And people are struggling with this guilt and they feel terrible. But look at this. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord 
and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. It doesn't matter what's going wrong in your life. Jesus loves you. Jesus will forgive you. Jesus can put any problem back together. And as a church, that's how we should be with each other. That's what we should reflect is God's loving, merciful, gracious restoration. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for giving us your word. Lord, help us to be wise. Help us to deal with things like anger. Help us to deal with lust in our life. Lord, help us to just cut those things off, to be serious about honoring you and loving you and pleasing you. So, Lord, we ask that you would bless us this week in your name. Amen.